Welcome to the Legacy Nashville podcast. We are so grateful that you've taken the time out of your day to tune in. We pray that this message encourages you to seek God's presence and serve God's people. Now, let's get to the message. I have the privilege of continuing our sermon series today by any means necessary. You guys remember the tagline? By any means necessary. This side over here, y'all try it out. By any means necessary. Jesus. By any means necessary, church, we must get people to Jesus. So for our passage today, we're gonna be opening the Bible and turning to John chapter eight. If you have your Bible, please open it up to John chapter eight. How many of you are keeping up with our annual Bible reading plan that we're doing together as a church? Four people, okay. Um, 300 of you signed up, so. (laughs) I'm proud of you, whether you read the Bible today or tomorrow or the next day, just get in it. It's always good, it always matters, it always applies. Doesn't matter what culture you're in, doesn't matter what culture you're from, doesn't matter what nation you're in, doesn't matter what nature Uh, nation you're from. Uh, God's word always works. Amen. Amen. Are you in John chapter eight? All right. We're going to be reading John chapter eight, verse two through 11. If you have a Bible, you can open it up there. If you need to uh, read off the screen, you can do that. Maybe you have your phone and app. Uh, But once you're in John chapter eight, please stand. We want to honor God's word and we want to read the Bible aloud together as a family. John chapter eight, we're going to begin with verse two. You ready? Let's get to work. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery, which I just want to say, that is sus. That's big sus, okay? Because what were they doing to catch the woman in the very act of adultery? I don't know. That's just me. I'm like, what? I don't know, man. That's that's sus. Verse 5. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women... So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, They went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Now, is that not the way in which Jesus deals with all of us? At the end of the day, no matter the chaos that is surrounding us, it is if Jesus and you are all alone and he speaks to you. 
Jesus is so good, amen? Amen. And Jesus stood up and said to her, verse 10, is that where we're at? Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go from now on and sin no more. Today, I want to speak to you from the subject, when a bad sinner meets a good God. When a really, really, really bad sinner meets a really, really, really good God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, we thank you for your nearness. We just ask, Holy Spirit, that we would all sense the very nearness of the person of Christ Jesus as we dive into your word. God, we pray that you would illuminate our minds, that you would transform our spirits to become more like you. Feed us today, Lord. We say as your children, we are hungry for fresh bread. We want you to feed us today, Father, and we receive it with glad hearts in Jesus' name. And everybody said, on your way to your seat, give somebody a high five and tell them God is good. God is good. That's right. All the time. That's it. That's it. That's it. And all the time. Yeah, y'all know it. Y'all know it. God is good. I am so grateful to have a good God like Jesus. Anybody else in the room today? I am so grateful that Jesus is my God. I'm so grateful that Jesus is my king. I'm so grateful that Jesus is my judge. How about you? Man, thank you, Jesus. So let's just create a bit of context for what's happening in this moment where Jesus is being tested by these Pharisees and he interacts with this sinful woman that we know as the adulterer. So in the moment, there is a celebration that is taking place in Jerusalem where all the Israelites have been gathered from all over the nation to come and to feast unto the Lord at a celebration called the Festival or the Feast of Booths. Anybody ever heard about this before? I know it seems a little crazy. What is the Festival of Booths? Well, the Festival of Booths is actually one of three pilgrimage festivals, as they called it, where everybody from all over the country would go to the big city of Jerusalem and they would celebrate and remember what God did by leading them through the wilderness when they camped out in booths, right? Tents, basically. And so they're celebrating, God, you were good to us as a nation. You removed us from the bondage of slavery, hallelujah, and you led us through the wilderness where we camped out in booths, and so we remember and we honor the deliverance that we have in God. So that's what they were doing. But also the festival of booths, a booth was something that would be parked next to a farm. So during harvest season, a farmer wouldn't leave the field because the harvest demanded so much focus and hard work, so he would build a booth, which was a temporary tent in which he would dwell during harvest season. So the festival of booths is quite literally a celebration of the harvest season. Now, I don't know about you, but that just gets me excited reading through the context. I'm like, God is speaking, and he's saying it's harvest season, amen. 
You know, I just, I got excited reading through the context. I'm like, okay, festival of booths. We're just going to establish ourselves a festival of booths in Jesus' name, you know. And so there's this huge celebration. I mean, imagine there are people there that have not seen their friends since the last, uh, you know, pilgrimage festival where everybody got together in Jerusalem. And so people are turned. You know, they're turning up. They're, they're, they're excited. They're having fun. They're, they're celebrating. They might be partying a little bit. And I think that would provide the perfect context for these zealous religious leaders to look for a woman that could be caught in the very act of adultery. Now, one of the things that, you know, you won't find so easily is that in this time in history, it was fairly common for rabbis to be in sin, engaged in adultery. I know that's rough news, but that could be the reason as to why they only brought the woman and didn't bring the man. That could be the reason why they were able to catch the woman in the very act of adultery because they knew the man that she was sleeping with. I don't know. There's no way of knowing precisely every single detail of the context But it is probable because there is a party happening in the big city. And so these religious leaders, I might even call them religious demons for fun, have taken the opportunity to attempt to trap our beloved Messiah, Jesus. And so these scribes and these Pharisees that bring this woman to Jesus, they might actually be a group, uh, at least two groups, one of which might be some zealous witnesses. You know, I'm talking about people who are excited, they are passionate, they burn hot uh, for, for, the, for God's holy word. But unfortunately, despite their passion and connection to God's word, they com- completely ignored and disobeyed God's son. So they're very zealous, these zealous religious leaders. They, they're a part of that camp, probably also uh, a synagogue-sponsored, uh, Sanhedrin-blessed uh, court is probably the other people because there's no way you could conduct legal business at this time in Israel without having the synagogue sponsor you and provide this legal communal council of judges that would try people's cases and give them um, a result as, as, as determined by what God wrote in his law. Are you, are you with me still? So, so we have this group of zealous witnesses uh, that watched or at least caught the woman in the very act of adultery. Then we have this uh, Sanhedrin-sanctioned group of judges, and they've caught the woman, and they're both bringing them to Jesus because according to to the law, this woman, this adulterous woman, has actually committed a very severe crime. And that's true, and you can look that up. In Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, The Bible says, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. See, that's why I said it's suspect. Because the the word, the law here says, don't just bring the woman caught in adultery, bring the man and the woman, but they have conveniently forgotten about the man and they've only brought the woman. So see, the whole procedure is actually a revelation of the evil of the Religious zealots. Big sus. That's big sus right there. But it's this thing that's crazy, man. And we always see this time and time again in the Gospels as these religious people talk to Jesus is that, you know, they say all the right words, but they have the wrong spirit. 
They have this commitment to the good book, you know, but they have such a bad spirit. And so, you know, they've read Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. They've also read Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22, uh, just a reiteration of what I read previously. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. And so that is what's happening here. They are, they are um, zealously declaring they are upholding God's law while simultaneously attempting to trap God's son. Okay, so that's what's happening. So let, let's talk a little bit about the trap, right? You got Jesus, he's there. He's, Jesus is just teaching, by the way. Uh, he's there at the Festival of Booths, and even though he himself is not a member of the Sanhedrin nor an official judge of Israel, he goes into the temple and he says, this is a great opportunity to address my people. Everybody's here, everybody's in the big city. I'm gonna sit down and I'm gonna start teaching them about my kingdom. So you got Jesus innocently doing a great work, right? And then you got these religious demons. They're coming, bringing the woman, and they said, oh, we've got it now. We've come up with the most crafty trap even this man who seems to be so wise and powerful, there is no way that he could ever escape from it. So they bring the woman, they throw the woman down before Jesus, and they're like, okay, Jesus, what do you say that we shall do? Because the law of Moses, which is the Mosaic law, declares that we should stone such a woman. See, they forgot about the fact that they should also stone the man. They conveniently left that part out. Isn't that what religious people always do? They cherry-pick passages to support their own religious opinions while never, ever really fully relying on the full counsel of God. Let me just get the parts that prove my point. Right? You don't use the Bible as a lever to prove your point. You get your point from the Bible. Oh, okay, got it. They're like... We got a trap here. Listen, we got the best trap. This is the best trap we've ever devised. He's gotten away from a few others, but there is no way that he can get out of this one because there is no way that he's gonna stand up in the temple where we've listened to him teach and defy Moses. There's no way he's gonna do that. There's no chance he's gonna do that. After all, we've been, we've been watching him. He's so nice. He's so polite. He's so friendly. He's too soft on sin. That's something also religious people say. Hey, hey. They always want you to preach on sin so long as it's not theirs. That's, that's just the one thing I've learned about religious people. They, they, oh, pastor, come on, go in on them. As long as it ain't me, you know. <laughs> they need to hear this. <laughs> right? So they're like, oh, this is a perfect trap. This man, he's so gentle. There's no way he's gonna condemn this woman to death, but that is gonna cause him to defy the Mosaic law, and that means we're gonna be able to trap him. We're gonna be able to try him by this same Sanhedrin court, and we're gonna be able to condemn him to death for heresy. There's no way he can be the son of God and commit the sin of heresy. And so they're like, there's no way that he's gonna say to stone the woman because he's too nice, he's too soft on sin, and we're gonna be able to trap him. But... In the given case that he does actually say, let her go, then we're gonna turn him over to the Romans. That's what we're gonna do. Actually, you know what? I may have gotten that backwards. 
If, if he says, I'm gonna stone her, that's right, then we'll turn him into the Romans because no one is allowed to execute anybody during this time without the Romans' permission. Did I confuse you or did I clear up the trap? You got it? You got it? You got it? So either way, he's stuck. If he says stoner, right, then we're gonna turn him over to the Romans. If he says let her go, we're gonna turn him over to the Sanhedrin. Did I clear it up? We're good. Okay, so Jesus is in a trap. I mean, honestly, I'm reading through this story, and obviously I know what's happened because I've read it before, but I'm thinking, how is Jesus gonna get out of this one? Like, this very possibly could have been the worst trap that Jesus has ever been in because if you think through it, there is no right answer. There's, there's no way of responding to this trap and being right. Have they finally trapped the Son of God? And what a malicious temptation by these religious people. Really, when you think about it, it's not just putting Jesus in the hot seat uh, in order to kill him. It's also using this woman willingly. They are willing to kill this woman that has been caught in adultery in order to get to Jesus so that they can kill him. Like, that's how terrible this situation is. And so when Jesus is in this trap, he's got a hard question coming at him but there's also the fate of this woman that hangs in the balance. So how is Jesus gonna answer? Now, before we go through his response, let's first for a minute consider the adulterous woman because we've, we've talked about Jesus. He's teaching in the temple. We've talked about the religious leaders. You know, they're coming to try and trap him. We've talked about the test. Uh, but what about the other character in the plot? The adulterous woman. Even though she doesn't say anything, she has my attention. Because the adulterous woman... She stands here before the Lord condemned. She stands here before the Lord lonely, I would think, extremely lonely. She stands here before the Lord defeated. She also stands here before all of these people embarrassed, exposed. We don't have a lot of details about the woman. We don't know where she was from, but we know she was taken in the very act of adultery, which would suggest to me that she is probably not fully dressed. You know, maybe she's trying to cover herself in this process. She was taken in the very act, which means she was probably taken aggressively, right? right? There was a group of men, a group of zealous witnesses, and they take the woman caught in the very act aggressively, so that leads me to believe she's probably battered. She's probably bruised. Maybe, you know, she's bleeding. I'm sure her hair is a mess. She might not be fully clothed. And there she stands silently, completely trapped, waiting to be tried. We don't know much about her, but I'm just assuming she's disheveled, she's bruised, she's broken, and she has no hope for her future. We don't know where she was with God. We don't know what she knew about religion. We have no idea. She may have actually known the Mosaic Law. She may have actually known what was gonna happen to her if she got caught, and she did it for some reason. We don't know. Maybe she watched someone else. Maybe she watched a friend. Maybe she watched a colleague tried and stoned for the exact same crime in the past. We don't know much about the woman, but I would have to believe that she is just shaking in fear that she's engulfed in loneliness, that she is, she's hurting, she's, she's in pain, she's exposed, she's embarrassed. I mean, could you imagine being put in the middle of a big crowd 
and being exposed uh, regarding the worst thing that you ever did. I, I, I mean, what, what do you think that experience would be like? I would have to believe that it's really bad. I'm talking about the things you've never told anybody. I'm talking about the things you don't want made public. I'm talking about the stuff that only you and God know. What would it be like to take that private, personal information and expose it to a group of people who were willing to kill you as a result of your worst sins? That's the situation that the woman is in. We don't know a lot about her. She stands in silence. But to me, her fear, her fear is absolutely palpable. Now, whether you would recognize this or not at first glance, we were all once this hopeless woman. We were all once this hopeless woman. Even if we weren't in the exact same situation, we have all been in the place of being completely broken and absolutely condemned. We've all been in that place before. And perhaps today that is the place that you are in. Maybe you're in a place where you're completely condemned. Maybe you're in a place where you're completely broken. Maybe you've been battered by life. Maybe you've done things that you're afraid to confess and you don't want anybody to find out. Maybe you're looking at the future and you're doing so without any hope whatsoever. There is no good thing for me to live for ahead. That is the situation of this woman. And even if that's not my state or your state or anybody in this room's state today, I can promise you this, there are so many in our world that are suffering right now, this very moment, in that state as we can be. I can guarantee you that. People who are bruised by life, they're busted, they're depressed, they're, they're done for, they're hopeless, they're, they're, just, they're on the edge thinking, I have been condemned, and if anybody were to ever find out the terrible things that I have done, I would absolutely be rejected, I would no longer be seen as worthy of being loved. I would no longer be recognized as being valuable. Everybody that I know would cancel me. I mean, what's unfortunate is that I think there are a lot of people like that in our world, and they don't want to come to church, and they don't want to be vulnerable, and they don't want to confess their sins for the very same fear. They are afraid that they can't talk about what they've done for fear of rejection by religious people. I mean, it would be great if we could just get super honest about this story because what we're getting to look into is a real witness into how the Son of God deals with people in sexual brokenness. Because, I, I mean, I don't know if you would agree, but I would think that some of, some of those areas of our lives are the Areas that are most intensely off limits. Oh, we can, we can talk about anything. We can talk about failure. We can talk about my mistakes, which is what we call sin now. There's a difference between mistakes and sin. Oh, it's just a mistake. No, it's sin. You need to repent. We don't, we, don't want, we don't want to talk about this stuff anymore, though. But we have to recognize that this woman is in the worst state that she's ever been in, and her most intense sexual sins have now been exposed for everybody to see. So how does God handle somebody in that state? Well, we see in this story. How does Jesus handle a, a woman, a guy? How does Jesus handle you? 
when you're exposed? How does Jesus handle you when you're condemned? How does Jesus handle you when you feel abandoned? How does Jesus handle you when you've been accused and all you've heard is lies about you constantly and there you are, open for the world to see, yes, I did do that and there is no way that I can cover it up. That's what we're peering into today. And the woman's state is that of so many, which is why we're on this sermon series and I've included this passage in the topic and that is by any means necessary, we have to get people to Jesus. There are people all over our city who are in this state. Hopeless, broken, condemned, accused, dealing with, with so much sexual baggage if we could be honest about it. Is that okay? Can I tell you, Jesus is not afraid of your sexual baggage. Can I tell you that Jesus is not afraid to listen to you confess the worst thing you've ever done sexually? Listen, I know this is not like it's not like the fun, and we're not supposed to talk about these things, right? We're not supposed to talk about these things, and yet Jesus was so present and willing and listening and prepared to receive a really, really, really bad sinner on her worst of all worst days as a really, really, really good God that was really welcoming. That's Jesus. That's who Jesus is. But how is Jesus gonna respond? Remember the trap? We know he's good. We know his heart uh, posture towards her is good. We, we know that he's a judge and yet he's merciful. We, we know that he's perfect. We know that he's sovereign. We know he's capable of doing anything and yet he finds himself in this trap where he's got, okay, are you gonna obey uh, Moses' law? Are you gonna obey Roman's law? Uh, whose law are you going to obey Jesus? And so Jesus is put in a position where he has to respond and Jesus responds, but he doesn't say anything. He just stoops down. When you are being accused by hell, Jesus ain't checking for none of that nonsense. Don't you hear us, Lord? She's terrible. Aren't you listening? God, you said she deserves death. You won't believe what she did last night. Instead of speaking, he responds, but he just stoops. Man, Jesus is so good. He's so humble and he's so wise. Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger in the ground. Notice how independently that Jesus acts. It does not matter how many times the devil sets you up, Jesus is always one step ahead. Jesus has this majestic calm about himself. Psalm two and eight says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. Why do the nations devise a vain thing? Why are the rulers, the nations of the earth in an uproar? 
saying, come on, let us cast off the restraints of God. Let us do whatever it is that we want to do. God is like, Do you think I'm checking for any of those accusations about my people? Do you think I'm listening to the lies that you have to say about my son or my daughter? I'm not checking for any of that stuff. I am the king of kings, and I operate with a different reality. See, his heart, his heart is anchored in that place of peace in the kingdom, despite the chaos and the confusion and everything that's going around. Jesus is just calm. The worst storms in your life, Jesus takes a nap in. Oh, yeah, I, I got you, don't worry. Sit down, shut up, I'm taking a nap. Uh, listen, Jesus is, listen, he, he is able to overcome your worst day so many times over. He doesn't even need to respond. He doesn't even need to dignify it with, uh, with, with his words. Uh, I, I, I don't know what he wrote in the sand. Anybody that tells you factually that they know for sure, they don't know, okay? No one knows, all right? Commentators, scholars, people, theologians, they've been, they've been arguing over what it was that Jesus wrote in the sand for like, at this point, thousands of years. We don't know. I, I have at least looked through some different possibilities. Uh, one commentator said that the reason why Jesus stooped down in the sand is because he wanted to communicate that he was completely inattentive to their malevolent questioning. Nope, not checking for you. Just gonna stoop down and write in the sand. <laughs> There's somebody's life on the line. You gonna play in the sand, Jesus? <laughs> it's about how important your accusation is. <laughs> she needs to be murdered. <laughs> Pay attention to us. Whenever everybody's screaming at you, look at Jesus. He ain't never flustered. He ain't never moved. He ain't never scared. Okay. I think that's a little John lyric. I listened to a lot of rap before I was saved, so. It comes out sometime in the sermon. There's also this German theologian from the 1700s, his name is Luke, spelled like luck, and uh, he says that actually in antiquity, that stooping down to write in the sand was representative of a deep musing. Is that how you say that? Amusing. Amusing. From Kentucky. A lot of rap from Kentucky doesn't help when it comes out. Um, musing. It kind of makes sense, right? It's like, okay, Jesus is thinking about it, right? He's thinking about how am I going to respond? What am I going to? And uh, so, you know, I, I I did what, um, you know, I think everybody should do. I I, I called my pastor. I was like, hey, uh, uh, Dr. Frank, uh, what, what did Jesus write in the sand? I'm preaching this tomorrow. I need an answer. <laughs> I need some help on this. And, and here's what he said, and I've heard this said before, so I think, it, I think it's, you know, common interpretation, but he said, well, no, he was writing the, the sins of the, of the accusers in the sand. Started with the oldest, worked his way down to the youngest. Rabbi. Adultery. 
He's like, man, I, put, I was here to put somebody else on trial. I wasn't here to be put on trial. I'm going to go ahead and get out of here. And he got down to the youngest, right? You, understudy. Covetousness. All right, I'm going to head out. Right, one by one, from the oldest to the youngest, they all leave. Which is what the word of God always does. It silences accusation, and it causes every hellish accusation to leave. This is just my opinion, but I think there is a possibility that what Jesus was doing by writing in the sand was signifying the reality that he wrote a new law. That's just me. That's my own personal interpretation. It's my opinion. I'm not saying it's correct, but it's my opinion. And here's why I think that is because he was caught in between two laws. He was caught in between the Mosaic law and the Roman law. And so he stooped down and wrote his own. Oh, my. Oh, my. Come on. I'm sorry. I, I, yep, I got a new one. I've got a new law, and, and, and Romans teaches us that that law has been written upon our minds. In the same way that Jesus wrote it on the sand. Also in John chapter 13, the Bible says, I give you a new law. That law is love each other, which I think applies to this scenario. Would you agree? Love each other. As I have loved you, so also you must love one another. So Jesus stoops. Jesus doesn't entertain their questions. He doesn't accept their questions. He doesn't reject their questions. He just stoops down and he leaves the entire crowd, including the woman, in complete suspense as he just stoops. So they continue to ask him, and he stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Jesus is so perfect that every response he gives is perfect. That is the perfect response. Jesus doesn't lean into legalities, that's not what he does, but he does lean into morality, and not just the morality of the woman that has been caught, but the morality of each and every single one of the accusers. He makes, he, oh, you guys wanted to make it all about this woman. It's actually about all of you. <laughs> you know, I read a scripture one time, I think it was in Matthew chapter seven, verse one and two, I may have it on the screen. It says, judge not that you be judged. For with the same judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the same measure you use, it will be measured unto you. Oh, you guys all wanna judge this lady. Okay, hold on, time out. This ain't gonna be just about her judgment. It's gonna be about your judgment too. Thank you for showing up to the trial. You thought you were gonna put her you know, you were gonna arrest her and put her on the stand, but Jesus said, oh, no, no, I'm gonna put you on it. Yeah. While you're always looking for somebody else's stuff, Jesus is like, hey, I'm here, confront your own. Yeah. Yeah. Let's start with you. Let's look at you. If you wanna be a judge, then, hey, prepare to be judged. That's what Jesus says. And he invites every single person that is there. He said, hey, if you're sinless, stone the sinner. Whoever's sinless. Oh, just me? Yeah, I, that's what I thought. <laughs> no one in the crowd 
is sinless. Therefore, nobody has permission to stone the sinner. Jesus is the only sinless person present. He's saying, hey, if your conscience is clean, if you're ceremonially clean according to the Levitical law, if you have no sexual sin, by all means, stone the woman. If you have no self-made sexual baggage, by all means, execute her, please. If you have no sexual defilement to speak of, then go ahead, cast the first stone. Well, who's guiltless in the room? Who's guiltless in the crowd? Who's without sin? Jesus challenges every single person that is there. And in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 17, verse 7, uh, the law actually tells the witnesses to be the people that throw the first stone. And that, that way no one could be unlawfully executed on the basis of hearsay. You see, so they were like, hey, if you saw the crime, you have to be the person that throws the first stone. If you saw the crime. So he, he, he calls every one of them out. Hey, you're the zealous witnesses. You said that you caught the woman in the very act. There's the stone, pick it up. If you're without sexual defilement, please throw it at her. Jesus is such a genius. They were setting him up to try and trap him and he turns it into an evangelism crusade. He's like, listen, you're all sinful. You're all defiled. None of you are clean. None of you are ceremonially clean, but I do have something running through my veins, the blood of the spotless lamb of God that could purify every single one of you. See, the, the, the religious people, they claim to love truth, but they didn't love it enough to stay around. Hey, oh, I'm gonna go ahead and get out of here, man. That's a little too much truth for me. See, I was co quoting those convenient truths that, that offended my opinion. So I'm gonna, go have to, I'm gonna have to leave out on that one. <laughs> oh, man, I don't have time to follow that one, I, but I would love to. Because I think that's the difference between religious people and actual disciples. When the Bible presents you with an inconvenient truth, are you like, ah, oh, that's enough truth for me. Because it's one thing to claim the authority of Scripture, it's another thing to submit to it. The religious people claim the authority of Scripture, but they don't obey it. Disciples obey it. I mean, I love it that people are good at arguing, but I love it even more when people are good at obedience. Romans 3 and 10 says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. Is this helping anybody yet? With one sentence, Jesus silences the crowd of your accusers. Consider yourself again as being this one hopeless woman that is completely broken and condemned. When Satan accuses you, Jesus simply stoops down. When Jesus speaks all hellish accusations against you have to go. Do you see how Jesus handles sinners? This is why by any means necessary, we have to get people to Jesus. Even on their worst day, even in their worst state, by any means necessary, we have to get people to Jesus. So let's close with this. I'm gonna give you some points real quick because I always do at the end. What happens when a really bad sinner meets a really good God? Point one is this. When a sinner meets Jesus, they will have never, ever met anyone like him. 
This is how a really good God handles a really bad sinner. When a sinner meets Jesus, they will have never, ever have met anybody like him. She may have never heard a sermon from Jesus. She may have never heard a secondhand testimony about Jesus. But when she's before Jesus, she recognizes that he is Lord. How does she respond? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. By being before Jesus, she receives revelation about who he is from him. And though she recognizes that he is judge, she also understands that he is not enemy. See, God is your judge, but he's not your enemy. Everybody wants a judge like Jesus. Because he's a judge that's not looking to put you away, but looking to set you free. Come on. Give me some evidence so that I can set you free. Here, let me give you my own blood to cover the evidence of your sin so that when you come before the court, I can not just look at your sin, but I can look at myself and say, you're clean. You're set free. Your record's been expunged. I can't see any sin. It's been scattered as far as the east is from the west. You may leave the courtroom now. Jesus is so good. He's so faithful to reveal himself to us, and he's so faithful to reveal himself to really, really bad, sinful people, which is why by any means necessary, we have to get people in front of Jesus. Listen, nobody meets Jesus because of our relentless evangelism. They meet Jesus because of his relentless faithfulness. We can do everything that we can to put people before him, but it's not us that ultimately gets them to open up their eyes and recognize that he's Lord. It is his faithfulness. Because as he sits before sinners, it is his kindness that leads them to repentance. They will say, I have never, ever met a man like this. John chapter four. Hey, everybody, come and see a man that has told me everything about myself. Could this be Lord? Listen, if we'll do our part, I can guarantee you this, God will do his part, and he'll reveal himself as being good even to the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst of, of people that we call sinners. Yeah. Point number two, Jesus will judge the sin, but he will not condemn the sinner. Jesus will judge the sin, but he will not condemn the sinner. Verse 11, neither do I condemn you, Jesus said, go and from now on, sin no more. Jesus does not condemn. The Holy Spirit convicts, but Jesus does not condemn. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans teaches us, right? Jesus judges the sin here, but he does not condemn the sinner because judgment and condemnation are two different things. John 3 and 17 says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus is coming as judge, not to minimize sin, because sin is serious, but to judge the sin and rid us from the very thing that separates us from him. That's what Jesus does. He doesn't minimize sin. Jesus never glosses over sin. You'll never see that because sin matters. It's what destroys us, which is why Jesus tells her, don't sin anymore because sin is destroying you. And if you continue in this way, it will continually destroy you. Wow. Point three, Jesus always provides an opportunity for freedom 
And when I say freedom, I mean salvation. Anytime Jesus meets a real, as a good God meets a really bad sinner, he'll always present him with a choice. Would you like to walk through this door that I have opened for you by my mercy? It's called grace. Or would you like to stay in the life that you're living in? Because I'm offering you the opportunity for a new beginning. That's what he offered to the woman. He offered to her an opportunity for a new beginning because with Jesus, shame and guilt never have the final word. Hope always has the final word with Jesus. It's never shame. It's never guilt. It's never condemnation. It is, here's an open door. Here's an opportunity. Life and life more abundantly in my name. Would you like to walk through it? This is the path of freedom. And number four, Jesus requires commitment. Jesus requires commitment. This is the last point. Verse 11, what did he say? From now on, sin no more. I'm I'm, going to take away your sin. I'm going to give you the opportunity for a new beginning. But as you step through that door, leave your sin behind. And don't sin anymore. Jesus requires commitment. Jesus commands commitment from his people. Jesus expects commitment from his disciples. He says, I want you to walk in my ways moving forward. Jesus is faithful to bring every single repentant heart into a lifestyle of wholeness and by the sanctifying power of his Holy Spirit, holiness. Jesus is faithful to do that, which is why everybody wants a God like Jesus. Everybody wants a judge like Jesus. Everybody wants a savior like Jesus. Everybody wants a friend like Jesus. Everybody wants a lover like Jesus. Everybody wants... Jesus. They may not know it yet, which is why by any means necessary, we got to get people to him because here's the God guarantee. When they see him, they will want him because he created them. And there is something within the heart of every single human being that is craving someone. And even if they don't know that it's Jesus, it's Jesus. Let's stand. First thing I'd love to do, if you guys don't mind, just to close your eyes for a minute, please. Close your eyes, bow your heads just for a minute. I just want to create an opportunity. If there is anybody under the sound of my voice in the room or watching online that you need to meet Jesus today, you are not saved, you are without salvation, you are condemned, and you have yet to meet Jesus in your life, would you raise your hand right now because I would like to pray for you and welcome you into the family of God. If that's you, just lift your hand courageously. I don't see any hands, so if that's you, just please lift your hand up. Awesome. I I don't see any hands. So what we're going to do is we're going to turn this room into a house of prayer for the next 30 seconds. And in intercession, we're going to begin to pray for those loved ones of ours who are lost and without Jesus. So go ahead. Get somebody in your mind right now. I know this person needs Jesus. Maybe my brother. Maybe my sister. Maybe my cousin. Maybe my auntie. Maybe my coworker. Come on. Grab a name right now. Grab a name. And we're going to pray right now in Jesus' name, Lord. We pray over each and every name. Lord, we say, call them. Call them to yourself. 
Lord, we know you're good, you're faithful, you're, you're, you're willing and able to forgive sin and you're able to cleanse us. God, would you cleanse my friend? Would you call my friend? Would you visit him in the night season? Would you give him dreams? Would you give him visions? Would you minister to him? Would you send somebody to prophesy over him? Would you put a sign in their way that they might know, hey, Jesus is after me. Jesus is searching for me. Jesus saves. Jesus died for me. Jesus is calling me home. Lord, and I ask that you would put in us a holy strategy to get that person to you. God, I ask that you would give us words. I ask that you would give us opportunities. I ask that you'd show us creatively how to invite them to church, how to pray over them. Lord, I pray you'd give us insight on their life, prophetic words for them. In Jesus' name, that we might be saints, that by any means necessary, bring people to the only solution in Jesus. Thank you for tuning into the Legacy Nashville podcast. If you'd like to support the ministry, you can do so at LegacyNashville.org forward slash give. If you're listening on iTunes, make sure you log into the store and give us a good review. This helps our podcast reach new people with the good news of Jesus Christ. Join us again next week for another powerful word.